Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Envisioning Better End-of-Life Care in New Jersey. This program was recorded March 21st, 2019 at the Rutgers University Douglas Student Center in New Brunswick, New Jersey. New Jerseyans nearing end-of-life undergo more aggressive medical treatments than patients in any other state, according to studies, and in facilities where care costs an average of 20% more than elsewhere. Despite their widespread wishes to avoid dying in a healthcare facility, only three in 10 state residents pass away in the comfort of their own home, in part because few have clearly documented or shared with family how they want to spend their final days. The gap between patient goals for end-of-life care and actual outcomes is the focus of growing attention nationwide and in New Jersey, where some 1.35 million seniors reside. Our state has the ninth largest senior population of any state, a group that's growing as baby boomers age. To improve the system, Garden State communities are urging families to plan ahead and document their wishes, and the state and healthcare providers are working to build a coordinated system to document these desires. But progress has been slow, complicated by personal and cultural concerns about discussing death, technological challenges, and limited training and incentives for the medical professionals involved. In this first Healthcare Roundtable event of 2019, an expert panel will discuss how to evolve and improve end-of-life care in the state. Now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce the program. Welcome and good morning, everyone. My name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and I'm really pleased to, to be hosting this event. Um, we've held, uh, over our close to nine years now, we've held close to 90 events around the state on various topics. Um, it's really important to us to have these live events as a way for folks to get together uh, in person and not just online. And, um, and obviously there's the network benefit, but, but also just seeing people um, face to face, I think is, is good for dialogue on, on important issues. Um, and I will say this one uh, topic hits closer to home than most, um, I think for all of us. Um, you know, I, my dad recently passed away, so I've dealt with a lot of these issues and it's rife with emotion um, and you know, very personal feelings, but also obviously a really important policy discussion uh, for the healthcare system and the state as a whole. So I really feel um, honored and fortunate to host it. Um, and I think uh, you know, there's amazing uh, speakers and panelists that I think can really bring some insight um, for all of us to take home. Um, about today, one of the things uh, most of you may know, but um, I'm, I'm going around telling everyone that um, our uh, NJ Spotlight recently got married um, and, and joined forces with WNET and NJTV Public Television. Um, it's a whole new chapter for us and, and we're very excited about that. And what comes with it is TV cameras. And so um, in, in a couple ways, you'll see some video segments that, are, that will be interspersed in the event, something that we're now able to do. And then uh, Matt Rosen in the back is uh, live streaming this as well. Um, and so folks can watch it at home. It, it you know, obviously increases our audience exponentially, but also um, you know, please, this, this will stay archived and, and, I can, and we'll be promoting that out um, and share it with folks um, so they don't necessarily have to have been here to benefit from the conversation. Um, 
And yeah, we will be creating, on that note, we will be creating a page about this event in the next few days that will have that live stream as well as a podcast, um, list of speakers, and any other information that, that came, comes out of this as well as, as likely a news story off of the event as well. So um, stay tuned to that. I think we will email everyone who registered uh, when that page is live. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Um, What's a conference or panel discussion without a hashtag, of course, um, and we and it's it's on your sheet, but it's end of life care, uh, NJ. Um, we will also uh, many of you. I think we have twenty some odd questions that were submitted when you registered, and we're going to try to integrate those into the conversation. Uh, don't feel insulted if we don't get to all of them, um, but I but we appreciate you doing that, and thank you very much. There are also surveys on the tables, which we ask you to fill out when you before you leave and and leave it at the front desk, or even just leave it on the table. That feedback is really important to us. This is um, these, as I've mentioned, these events are really a critical piece of our mission, and to have that feedback of what works and doesn't work uh, is really valuable and appreciated. Um, and last but not least, I want to introduce Steve Shallot, our business development director, uh, to talk a little bit about our sponsors. Um, I, I will say, um, you know, as the head of Spotlight, how important the sponsors are. They really make these events possible, and especially make them possible to be free for folks. I mean, I know you guys go to a lot of conferences, and uh, there's oftentimes a price tag to get in. Um, you know, it's really important for us that these be open to the public and free to the public, uh, and and we couldn't do that without the support of our sponsors. Um, so I want to introduce Steve Shallot just to tell you a few words about each one. Thank you, John, and thanks everyone for coming. Uh, we really appreciated the opportunity to uh, to illuminate important issues in the state. is uh, It's part of our mission, and it's our our um, our, our pleasure and and to do it. And uh, your support and interest, of course, makes that possible. And on the um, uh, the financial side of making these possible, our sponsors play a key role, as John mentioned. And I'd like to say a few words on behalf of our sponsors today um, for whose support we're grateful for. Uh, first is Holy Name Medical Center, which is a fully accredited not-for-profit healthcare facility based in Teaneck, New Jersey, with off-site locations throughout Bergen County. It was founded and sponsored by the Sisters of St. Joseph of Peace in 1925. The comprehensive 361-bed medical center offers leading-edge medical practice and technology administered in an environment rooted in a tradition of compassion and respect for every patient. Holy Name provides high-quality, affordable health care across a continuum that encompasses education, prevention, early intervention, comprehensive treatment options, rehabilitation, and wellness maintenance. Holy Name has been recognized as a statewide leader in improving end-of-life care, end care with their work at the Villa Marie Claire in Saddle River, New Jersey. The Villa Marie Claire is the only freestanding hospice in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area and offers a unique approach that encompasses a full spectrum of end-of-life care, the patient, the family, caregiver, provider, and the community. We'd like also to thank Compassion and Choices, which is the nation's oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit working to improve care, expand options, and empower everyone to chart their end-of-life journey. Since 1980, they've united over 450,000 supporters nationwide to become the preeminent leader in the end-of-life options movement. The organization works to ensure that healthcare provides providers honor and enable patients' decisions about their care. To that end, Compassion and Choices works in communities, state legislatures, Congress, courts, and medical settings to educate the public about the importance of documenting end-of-life values and priorities and about the full range of available options. 
also to empower individuals with, individ with achievable options, um, information and advice for guiding their care and engaging with their providers, to advocate for expanded choices that put patients first and value quality of life and treatment plans for terminal illness, and to defend the existing end-of-life options from efforts to restrict access. And lastly, we'd like to thank the New Jersey Hospital Association. The NJHA has provided more than a century of service to New Jersey's healthcare community. With a diverse membership including nearly 400 hospitals, health systems, nursing homes, home health providers, hospice, assisted living facilities, um, the NJHA mission is simple to improve the health of people in New Jersey. Together with its members, NJHA strives for a system of care that is high quality, safe, affordable, accessible, and consumer-centered. So thanks very much to our sponsors. Um, before we start the event, um, which will start with a keynote address from Mike Marin from Holy Name, we are first going to show one of the aforementioned video clips that John mentioned from NJTV, which should serve to well uh, set up the, the conversation today. And with that, would like to direct your attention to the screen. Thank you. A medical emergency strikes. The ambulance comes and professionals start administering care. But what if that emergency is life or death? and there's no document to help doctors or family make critical decisions. It sounds dramatic, but sadly, it's a scenario continuing to play out across the state, with far too many people in the mindset that end-of-life care happens solely in those critical moments before death. In reality, healthcare professionals say it can occur in the days, weeks, months, and even years before dying. But how do you get people to talk about it, and better yet, to plan for it. We only have a little less than a third of um, our residents having that type of conversation when they're in end of life, when they have a life-limiting illness. Um, we'd like to see that number grow. A national poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows just one out of every 10 adults reported discussing their own end-of-life care wishes with a doctor, and it didn't improve much with age. On top of that, only roughly one quarter of all adults have written down their end-of-life medical wishes in a document. The vast majority are those aged 65 years and older. That lack of clarity around patient preference has frequently resulted in expensive interventions, care that's inconsistent with patient wishes, and unwanted aggressive treatment, according to the Governor's Advisory Council report on end-of-life planning. The state's been emphasizing the use of several options to improve patient care. The most common is the advanced directive. It's a legal document with your medical choices that only goes into effect if it's determined you're unable to understand your diagnosis and treatment options. The advanced directive has two variations. The proxy directive or power of attorney, appointing someone else to make health care decisions on your behalf, either temporarily or permanently or the instruction directive, commonly called a living will. It includes your beliefs and values, along with instructions about life-sustaining treatment. In 2011, legislation was signed creating the PULST, or Practitioner Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. This form, recently made available via an online registry, gives instructions for a range of life-prolonging interventions. It's signed by a patient's physician or advanced practice nurse and becomes part of their medical records, following a patient from one healthcare setting to another, including hospitals and even hospice. 
What's hospice? It's both a place and a concept, helping people who are terminally ill live out their days comfortably. A team of trained caregivers provide physical and spiritual care, sometimes through the use of medicine, counseling, and other means, either in the home or at a hospice facility. Contrary to popular belief, the service is not limited to the very end days of life, and caregivers are also eligible for support. If the illness isn't terminal, but still serious, palliative care is available. This focuses on relief from symptoms and stress with a goal to improve quality of life for both patient and family. Despite the range of options though, not enough residents are taking advantage of end-of-life care planning. While it's no surprise talking about death is wildly unpopular, but the good news is just talking about it won't kill you. Uh, that was Brianna Venozzi. Thank you from afar. Um, she's not here today, but that was a, a great piece. I'd like to introduce um, our keynote speaker, Mike Michael Marin, um, CEO and, and president of Holy Name Hospital. Um, in his biography, uh, he joined. You know, the, the the resume piece of this is he joined Holy Name in 1987 as its CFO and then was named its CEO in 1996. Uh, has also served on the board of the New Jersey Hospital Association and, and has a, a long list of affiliations uh, and impressive in his career. Um, I, I read an old interview he did a couple years ago and I hope it's, I hope it's a good interview, um, but um, about how he, how he became a hospital uh, CEO in this case. And he said he uh, initially dreamed of being a, a doctor and I think was a pre-med in Providence College. And I don't know if he wasn't doing very well or, um, or, or what, but he'd, somebody approached him midway and started talking to him about, you know, have you thought about being a hospital administrator? Um, and he shifted his course of study at that point, you know, why not be the boss of the doctors and, and not have to go to med school? And so that was a, a good move. Um, and obviously it, it worked out to be a really wonderful move. Um, and, you know, he is, and I, I know this having gone through uh, recently doing my own research on, on hospitals, um, he certainly has uh, made a name for a holy name um, in a number of ways that go beyond just the medicine it delivers. Uh, also the culturally sensitive um, you know, care and, and services that are, are important in a, in a town like Teaneck, which is about as diverse as they get in New Jersey, and also the compassionate care and, and um, that has embraced it. One of the key lines in this interview was asking what, what makes him a, a good hospital administrator, and I, I, th I hope I got this right. Um, I, I think, and his answer was, I think I'm a good parent uh, of four children, and I think that, that told you a lot about Michael Marin. So I'm uh, very honored and pleased to introduce Michael to say a few words. Good morning. Thank you, John, for that great introduction. I haven't heard that one in a while. Uh, so I'll start with that. Truth be told, it was my older brother, who was a year ahead of me at Providence, was a pre-med major, and he started his sophomore year with organic chem. It was actually my first week of school, and he said, you sure you want to do this? <laughs> You're not going to be able to hang out at the bars and have a good time the way you thought. We just always kind of skated through our academics. And so I changed my mind and became an accounting major week one. Uh, my older brother talked me out of it. And then a counselor talked me back into picking up health administration. He asked me why I made the change and then said, would you ever consider running a hospital? And at, at that time, I had no idea it existed. So that's how I'm here. 
So good morning, thank you all. It's a real honor to be here. I want to thank uh, NJ Spotlight for, for, for hosting this. Um, as hopefully you will learn through this and you've already seen with the video, which is a great intro, uh, this subject matter is, is very near and dear to me personally, as you will learn, and it's also very near and dear to Holy Name as an organization. It's something that we have believed in for a long, long time. Back in the days when Jane Boyle was with us and we, we opened the Villa Marie Claire um, it's very unique, and uh, hopefully I can, I can instill some of that on you as to, as to why and, and the challenges that we face. So, um, you know, as most of us know, you know we're, 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 as a society, and, and everything is, is, is talked about this, we don't always like to talk about end-of-life care. It's a difficult subject. Um, but it is one of the most important conversations that we need to be having, not just on a... Uh, interpersonal level uh, within our own family members and loved ones, but as a society, as a healthcare leaders and as policy matters in, 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 in this room, uh, policy makers in this room today. Um, we need to understand that most healthcare issues revolve around the interconnection, and, and uh, Commissioner Elnahal and I have had, had this conversation uh, a couple of times on, on different subject matters, and I believe this in, in all my years' experience. There are three intersecting spheres. There are societal issues, that come into play, there's clinical practice, and then there's the all ever-ending economic forces that intersect, and those three circles intersect in almost everything that is healthcare, any issue that we wanna raise, I could probably frame within those three fears, and, and they have to be addressed simultaneously, not sequentially. If you just squeeze one, something will pop up somewhere else, and we need to have a very comprehensive End-of-life care is, is no different uh, in, in that matter. It's very clear in New Jersey that we haven't been addressing it enough as a, as a matter of public policy. At the beginning of this year, the, as mentioned in the video, the New Jersey Governor's Advisory Council of End-of-Life Care released its much-anticipated report with 26 policy recommendations for the Department of Health. Considering our state's aging baby boomer population, the council warned the department that end-of-life care is not being addressed in New Jersey, and the situation is becoming more and more dire. The council stated, there is, and I quote, there is no clear vision of how the healthcare system will be able to meet the obvious growing needs for chronic, palliative, and end-of-life care. This increasing demand, as well as the need for improvement in accessing palliative and end-of-life care are key challenges. According to the Dartmouth Atlas, which I have quoted uh, at, at length, uh, New Jersey consistently has ranked one of the worst states in the nation, 49th out of 50th in the nation for Medicare costs in the last six months of life. Um, Dartmouth also says that New Jersey residents spend 44% more days in the intensive care unit compared to the average American and 30% more days in the hospital in the last six months of life. And this has been consistent for a long, long time. I'll share with you a story many years ago uh, when, when the Dartmouth Atlas results were first published. New Jersey ranked pretty bad. Uh, and at the time, I was much more active in the, in the leadership of all the Catholic hospitals. There were a lot more of them back then around New Jersey. And sadly, one of the Catholic hospitals, which is a tough one for me to swallow, was the worst hospital in New Jersey. And, and so I was appalled by this, called the CEO and said, you know, can we talk about this? And he said, sure, come on down, I'll show you. And I went there and visited, he said, let's go to the ICU. And we walked into the ICU, a 20 bed unit, 100% occupied. He said, you see these 15 people over here? These 15 people are Medicaid and charity care. They have real needs, they need to be taken care of. You see these five people? 
That's Medicare. Dartmouth Atlas only measures Medicare. It's not measuring the whole population. The data is only Medicare. So see, see those five people? They're the Medicare ones. If I don't let my physicians bill for basically a term that I use a lot, churn and burn on those five, those 15 won't be cared for. Right? So I went down saying, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible. It was not something I was prepared actually to see. It was somewhat saying, all right, so does the, the good of the many justify the, you know, the punishment of the few, if you will? But that was their philosophy. I can't take care of the 15 if the five, I don't let my doctors make an income on the five. So I'm not proud of it, but that's not disclosed in the report. It's not as simple as we always like to think it should be, right? There's complexities at every turn that we don't always anticipate when we're making these policy decisions. Nonetheless, we have to improve uh, care for New Jersey residents in the final chapters of their lives, but in a meaningful way. We know that while life-extending care and other medical treatments may lengthen life, it often does not does so at the expense of quality of life. We see this every day. Our goal should be to help patients and families understand the difference and maximize the moments they share in the final uh, months, weeks, days, hours together. Villa Marie Claire, as you heard, it, it, what's different about the villa, it is the only thing that happens there. There is no assisted living, there is no SNF, there is no nursing home, there is 20 dedicated beds solely the entire campus designed just for helping people cope with and deal with the end of life. That's all, it, that's all it does. It is 27 of the most beautiful acres in one of the wealthiest towns in, in the country, uh, in Saddle River, northern New Jersey. It is just a spectacular place. Uh, there is an energy there, and I don't mean to get all sort of philosophical on you and, and theological, but there is absolutely an energy there. The, the people have, have commented on it uh, uh, considerably all the time. The villa started when a very dear friend of mine, a priest actually, uh, who was very involved in, in healthcare, he was, he was part of the Catholic Health Association, he was part of NJHA for many, many years, a guy by the name of Joe Kukura, uh, was diagnosed with, with metastatic cancer terminal. And very good friends of ours, he had no family, no, no siblings, no, no one to, to care for him, so friends, and, and very good friends of his, took him into their home. And, Classic story with home hospice, took the dining room table out of the dining room because their house wasn't equipped for this, put a bed in, put him in the bed, cared for him as long as they could, and finally called me and said, Mike, we, 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 this is just way more than we thought. We can't do this. What, what can we do? Nothing existed in northern New Jersey at the time to help him. So what did we do? We cleaned out a semi-private room in Holy Name, put couches and chairs in half of it to make it like a living room, put him in his bed, and help Joe transition life where visitors, friends, families, a very, very popular, very dynamic guy, come and visit and see him in, in the end of life. But as I watched that on a medical floor at the hospital, right, which, trust me, my CFO at the time was giving me a very hard time, like, what are we doing here? This is not economically feasible. It's not about the economics, that other bubble, right? This is about caring for somebody and there are no other resources. Um, and that was one of the big catalysts for us to, to push for the Villa Marie Claire because there really was no place to go. So anyone who's ever been there will, uh, isn't, and you'll know this, and the Villa philosophy is very much about this, and we talked about it. It's not about death. It's about life. It's about life in those final days of life when finally we all, the most educated of us, the most driven of us, it doesn't matter. I've seen this time and time again from the most religious who break down when they realize that the end of life is near, 
right? It's about living those days to their fullest, with the highest quality, to reconcile, to, to make amends, to do, to enjoy, to, to really, really live. And we try to focus on that as best we can. That is really what the, what the villa is about. It's about the family coming together. The, believe it or not, there is a, and it's under major renovation now because in the video you saw, I've personally had, so I'll, I'll divert for one second, uh, a lot of family members, uh, unfortunately, be in the villa. Uh, the first one actually was my 46-year-old sister uh, who, was, who was diagnosed with metastatic uh, melanoma. She lived in Rochester, came down. I did the same thing, tried to have her in my home. Didn't, could not really accommodate her with all my resources. Transferred her to the villa because it was much more appropriate setting. Uh, and she was cared there till the end of her days. I wear, whenever I speak, so one of my sons gave me these cufflinks. They are pennies uh, because one of, there are many, many themes in end of life, cardinals, butterflies, pennies, coins showing up where you don't believe that they will. Uh, this is somewhat true. We have seen, I've seen this, I've witnessed it on every level. Uh, so if, if you don't have faith, you don't believe, trust me, uh, th those things happen. So it was uh, uh, 1967 to 2013, her, right? So one, one coin is, is 1967, the other one is 2013 as a constant reminder uh, that she's still with us. The video, uh, you really couldn't, they cut my head off. That was the, the one gentleman there was, uh, was my uncle, uh, Tommy McCooey, advanced Parkinson's. He was at the villa for about three months. Uh, and so through all of that, I, I can see it from both sides as the organizer and the provider, but also as the recipient of what it's about. And we're constantly tweaking, adjusting, and refining so that it, uh, it gets better and better. I do believe there is a big, big role for, for residential uh, home hospice. But we talked about this. One of the big things at the villa that we try to do in our evolution in the beginning, it was all about the patient themselves. Family was important, friends, the support, but it was really about the patient. I would now say that our thinking has evolved and the patient, the family, and the, and the, the community around that individual are equally as important. It is not just the patient. So we comfort them, we manage their pain, we help them transition, we provide all the support that's needed to be there for symptom management but we are providing nonstop, and this goes on for years after, family, friends, community support and counseling to help deal with what's going on at the villa. Very, very, very uh, important uh, component. Uh, often I talk about this, one of the failures in, in the reimbursement system, so we will get, uh, uh, say, a 95-year-old priest like Joe Kakura, who has no family, no siblings, he'll come there, uh, the parish, you know, will come visit. It's relatively small activity. We comfort that individual. We support them through th their transition through death. Compare that, which I, we are now seeing way too often, the 38-year-old mother of four who's got, you know, brothers and sisters, a husband, parents are still alive, active in her community, and the hundreds of people who, who've come to, to show their support and want to be part of those last days of that person's life, who want to make it enjoyable, and we want them there, right? But with them comes a whole sort of burden, right, of supporting them, counseling them, feeding them, housing them, right? We have a whole side of the villa that is, is meant for family members to be able to sleep and stay so they don't have to leave, right? Many, many people want to be there at the time of transition, so we... we we don't say, oh, sorry, you can't accommodate you, we, and it, you're not sitting in some chair in the room. We can give you a nice room, we'll wake you when, when, the, 
when they are at that stage and have you come down and, and, and spend those last minutes with the individual when you do it. So very, very, very different uh, uh, sort of structure. Palliative care addresses the two areas that have long been uh, weak spots in, in American health. We, we talked about that, effective pain and symptom management, and the expertise needed for long, often difficult communication about prognosis uh, and goals for the end of life. For the past several years, all branches of state government have collaborated um, in support of Holy Names Residential Hospice, the Villa Marie Claire. I want to thank Commissioner Elna Hall for his personal support on this uh, because the reimbursement system doesn't work, right? And this is part of why the Villa is different. So Holy Name, and we've, we have a long history of doing this, and even with my financial background, people look at me like I'm saying, so we will do things that we think are right for the community when there is no margin. Right? You don't see these inpatient hospices everywhere, I will tell you as a fact, because there is no margin in it. You can't make money at it. And so when money is the number one driver, you, if you want to do it right, in the way I define it right, let me put it that way. There are for-profit hospices around, uh, and they do good work, but it is limited. And it's about the patient. It's about maximizing that GIP and how do I actually code and identify and bill for the level of care that we're providing and maximize that. It's not about necessarily all the support and the bereavement counseling for the family members and, and everybody else around, right? So very, very different. Um, but you can't make money at it. And so we've, we've committed to do that. The state's uh, recent support has made a huge, huge difference for us to be able to really accelerate some dreams, some visions that we have, and I'll just touch on a few of those. Um, let me tell you something about the villa, and this is, a, and, and this is also a, a, a big factor. Um, Everybody that we see enters this process almost universally way, way too late. So a third, the villa now actually has a, has a waiting list for people trying to get in. A third of the people who are referred to the villa, and this is a standing for eight and a half years, standing statistic has not moved. A third expire before they even get there. Another third expire within the first 24 hours. First 24 hours. The final third have an average stay of about six weeks. There are many, many factors that drive that. But I will say that the, uh, uh, the, the recent, the most recent one is the, it's clinical. It is the physicians, it is the medical community, how we address it, and, and I'll just talk on that in a, in a second. Uh, the development of palliative care as a specialty really hasn't been promoted in, in, in the healthcare system. Because the real reward for palliative care is they, you know, the, the theory the textbooks will tell you today is cost savings, right? There's no real, there's no investment in it, so we're not going to let you bill or, or collect successfully. It's all around trying to reduce costs. There's a legitimacy there, but there's a conflict between incentives and practice, right? I can make a lot more money if I'm churning and burning than I can if I'm putting a patient over on, on palliative care. So as long as we're in fee-for-service medicine, there's a lot of money to be made at end of life. Right? There's, no, there's no doubt about that. Um, and so changing that economic factor is going to be a, a big, big uh, component in, in how we ultimately move. Um, there is also a lack of expertise because there's a lack of money, right? So not a lot of people do not want to get into this area. Uh, we have a full-time physician who is, uh, through training, a radiation oncologist. Uh, he's Charlie, Dr. Charlie Violati. He's, uh, I will tell you, uh, anybody who's in northern New Jersey, you should stop in and just meet this guy. 
Uh, he is the closest thing I have ever encountered and all the people I've encountered on this planet that comes close to a living saint. He's a 75-year-old radiation oncologist who is transitioned out from doing radiation oncology now full-time, lives there 24-7 uh, to, to comfort, care, and, and uh, for the people. It's going to be a real issue for us because he's kind of irreplaceable. And uh, we've been trying to find someone like this who, who in their heart, is so, so willing to sacrifice and commit and give of themselves for the comfort of others. Right? It's not something we see every day anymore. In fact, we see less and less of it as society becomes much more self-centered and selfish in their, in their overall terms. Not a lot of people like this. He is what I think is, is someone at the end of the day, if the Catholic Church itself wasn't so screwed up, would be canonized to be a saint because he's such, a, he's such an incredible individual. So let me ask you something here. We, we started this, and I do this in whenever I talk now, in every, especially in clinical settings with physicians and nurses. How many people in the room have an advanced directive? Oh my God, so that's why you're here, right? <laughs> so that is outstanding. Let me tell you the result that I get when I ask that question. Usually 10, 20% of the room at most raise their hand. They don't have it, right? And so I ask them all the time, how are you supposed to have the conversation with your patients when you haven't had it with yourself? You can't, you can't. And because this is not a superficial, clinical, textbook kind of conversation. It's got to come from the heart. And if you haven't had it with yourself, you are not going to come across as genuine and authentic to that family and that individual when you want to have that conversation and try to get them to understand what end-of-life planning is all about. You need to have it with yourself. Right? And so we've done a lot of things. We've done a lot of things on paper. The, you saw the pulsed form now that NJHA has adopted. But let me tell you what, I, what we have found. Those paper documents, in the moment, very, very raw emotional moment of death, are subject to very wide interpretation. Nobody, they want to read that document the way their heart's telling them they should read it. It is the subject of a lot of controversy. So part of what we've been doing, Holy Name is unique in that we write a lot of our own software. We are a big tech shop. We develop a lot of that. That's a sort of a personal sidebar hobby of mine, which has driven that for 30-something years. Um, so we are very, very close. I actually had wanted it done today so I could give the commissioner his access to it and he could test it. But it is in the, uh, it is in the first stage of beta testing amongst, the, amongst myself and some executives at, at, the, at the hospital. It is an online advanced directive that takes you through first a, a mind frame setting exercise to get you in the right frame of mind to answer these questions. It then completes electronically the forms so that you can check off the boxes and say here and fill in text and say here is my, my end of life wishes. The most powerful part of this is it concludes with a teleprompted scripted video that you do right on your smartphone and you videotape yourself in your own voice, with your own inflection, with your own emotion about your end of life wishes. This all then gets forwarded to who you want to be your proxy and anybody else via email. It is all stored electronically. The beauty of that is when family controversy or clinical controversy arises and people want to read the text, interpret it differently, we turn the video on and say, why don't we listen? Why don't we listen first, and then we'll read the text, because then we actually know. Much, much more powerful. They've, they've been doing some of this up in, in Massachusetts on a trial basis. Very, very powerful way. And then this is accessible 
24-7, anywhere in the world, right? So this data, this new, new software will be rolled out uh, relatively soon uh, this year. Like I said, it's in the beta, very, very close to being, uh, being finished. It is an extremely valuable resource. The other part is that I have become convinced the change that's going to occur here needs to be generational. We're not, I wish we could flip the switch tomorrow, get everybody to see the light and educate. That's just not reality, right? This is going to take time. It's going to take generational with the clinicians. It's going to take generational in society. So my hope is for all of those people who come to the villa, those family, the community, the, the people who are there to say goodbye to their loved ones, those, while those emotions are raw, we can get them to sit down and say, have you thought about your own end of life wishes? Because the one comment that I get repeatedly from those people, especially the ones who are there only for 24 hours, why did we not know about this? No one told us that this existed. I wish we knew about this sooner. I would have had mom, dad, my, my spouse, whoever, my child, transferred from that ICU to this setting a long time ago had they told me about it. And it's got to be told in a very accurate, descriptive voice, not a monotone, clinical, oh yeah, there's this place, they got beds, they got nurses, they care for you, it's nice, right? You have to have some feeling in there. It's why we encourage tours. We want people to come and see because when you walk on the campus, you will feel it, you will see it. It is, it is very, very different. Um, so it is critical for us that, uh, that this continues on uh, in, in, a, in a very, very, very uh, uh, big way and that we start to push that generational uh, push. One of the things that I will do, uh, at, at, and I've spoken about this at the hospital, our, our attorneys don't like it so much when I talk this way, but so what? Um, in this subject matter, it's kind of how it is. So what, my goal here, it's kind of like the, the flu vaccines and smoking cessation, which are big on, on the hospitals now within our, within our campuses for caregivers or employees. You know, we want, we're healthcare facilities. We should be doing those things and advocating for it. Well, I believe so strongly around this that it'll be voluntary for the first 12 to 24 months once this application is, is, is live. Then it'll be mandatory. If you want to be employed at Holy Name or you want to be a practicing physician on our staff, you will have to have one of these completed and in your file. It'll be linked to your physician credential file. It'll be linked to your employment file. Uh, everybody from the housekeeper right on up to, uh, to the, the staff in the ICU. There are no exceptions. Right? They have to have it. I'm not telling you what's in it, right? This is where I'm not telling you you have to say I want, you know, I want uh, uh, minimum care. You can say I want every life-saving under the sun, but at least you've thought about it and thought about it enough to put it on, in paper and to record it. Uh, so we want to, we're, we're going to push that forward. Uh, the, Henry Ford had done this in, in the Midwest with some great, great success. And so that's our ultimate goal. So within, within 36 months from now, uh, every, every person associated with Holy Name will have to have one of these on file. Uh, and then we will use our simulation training, which we do today, to help advance people in the skill of having this conversation. The nurses up at the villa and Dr. Charlie, very, very special from their compassion, their clinical side. You know who gets the best accolades there? The housekeepers and the chefs, right? As, in, in, as a society, I'm, it's fascinated by this. We comfort ourselves a lot with food, 
food is very, very important. And so when the chef can deliver food in a compassionate way, not just here's your food, thanks, blah, 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 but be very sensitive to what's going on and support that family. So we get incredible feedback from those families saying, these guys are amazing. It's not the nurses are great, Dr. Charlie's great clinically, they're, they're here, they support us, they comfort us, they counsel us, the social workers, we get it, we love them. But these guys, they're not supposed to do that, and they do. That's what makes it so special, right? It's coming from unexpected sources. We encourage that. We want that to, we want that to continue to happen. To me, it's a big, big part of lowering the cost uh, of healthcare. I will share with you, and, and, and then I'll wrap up. Holy Name, in its early stages, its first ACO, when ACOs became popular, right, uh, accountable care organizations, Medicare-based, first time ever that we were allowed to see data outside of the hospital where the spend was occurring, right? Now, in this population, there's no cancer and there's no uh, end-stage renal disease. They're, they're excluded from the Medicare pool. I'm rounding numbers here just to make the, the math simple. There were 10,000 lives in Holy Name's first ACO. Average spend for those 10,000 lives in a year, 12-month period, was $10,000. 9,300 of the 10,000 people spent $4,000 or less. That means 700 people spent $90,000 or more in that 12-month period. That's how the, the math works out. So 7%, 700 people spent over $90,000. Now, for the first time, we had this across the spectrum. We took the 700. I said, this is a manageable number. Let's go talk to the doctors. We know who they are. Let's find out what was going on. Single biggest, most common factor, end of life. Because we went and met with the doctors. Oh, they're dead. They're dead. They're dead. They're dead. It was by far the single most common factor. It, it drove home the point that if we're gonna to move to value-based care, we're gonna get away from fee-for-service medicine. You get, this is the low-hanging fruit that if we can effectively deal with end-of-life, quality-of-life, there are huge economic savings. But most importantly, there is clinical excellence beyond what anybody could imagine. Beyond. We have launched hundreds of clinical programs in my tenure at, at Holy Name, by far, Clinically, this is the most successful one we ever did, by far, off the charts. Financially, it is a train wreck, right? When I started this, I had a full head of hair, uh, and my board reminds me of this every month when we're going through the financials, but it's the right thing to do. And our hope is to continue to push, and, and Commissioner Alho's uh, support has made a huge, huge difference, take the pressure off now <laughs> quite a bit, and we can actually start to push. So we are doing things in advanced simulation training, to move caregivers through, right? We will discipline our doctors now, even though we don't have the advanced directors. If you're not calling palliative consults, if you're not having that conversation with your patients when we think it's appropriate, and that becomes a trend, then we're gonna enroll you in a simulated scenario to show you how to have that conversation and how to start, start to move people along. We will ask you to round up at the villa to see the people there. Come and visit it. I encourage that to everybody. If you have doubts, you're not sure about how you can be very effective in managing pain, symptom management, and helping people live those last days of their life, last months of their life, come visit. I assure you, and I can say this with utmost confidence, you will see it. It is possible. We can do a lot more, right? A lot more. 
for all of you in the room and, and, and who are here, I thank you for your, your support of this initiative. I thank the commissioner for, for what he's done and continues to do. I know this is, is near and dear to him, very, very important. It's a huge issue in our healthcare system. We are in our infancy. My hope is that when my four boys, John was absolutely right, when they're older, right, they have I've made them, they've thought about it, right, because it happens. My kids are all caught up in the, the opioid epidemic that is plaguing this. My two youngest sons have lost more friends than I ever did at, at that age, right? And I see this and we have a lot of, we have a lot of conversation around death. And I, we talk about it and my message to them is the one big message, and I take this personally, it struck home with me about 10, 15 years ago. Our time here is limited. We have a choice. What are we gonna do with it to make the most of it? So that when we're gone, it's not what we do, it's not a name on the building. I tr assure you, you will never ever see my name on any building, right? My legacy would be that we change this process and that we change the attitudes and the behaviors of those who are coming after us to be better. That's what my father tried to do with me, my parents tried to do with me, it's what my older brother tried to do with me. That's what I try to leave down in my legacy to my children, hopefully to the community that I can touch, much more important than brick and mortar how we can change our thinking and our overall philosophy. I think the Villa does that. I think all of you here committed to this subject have done this, continue to do it. I applaud you for that, and I thank you to have, for the opportunity to be able to share my thoughts with you. We can't offer much, but we do offer coffee mugs. Here we go. All right, uh, panelists, could you please join us? You know who you are. While we're doing that, I want to introduce our moderator, um, Lilo Staten, has uh, been with Spotlight now for how long, Lilo? It seems like, well, you know, five years. Um, she's our uh, healthcare reporter and uh, extraordinary uh, journalist and, and member of our team and, and uh, has gotten quite good at this moderating gig, too. And so I look forward to this discussion. It's a, it's a, a crowded stage. I need to get one more mug also, it turns out, um, but I'll leave it to you. It's all yours. Morning. Everybody still with us here? Good. Continue this. Uh, we, um, this, is, this is, thank you for the introduction and all that good stuff. Um, this is, uh, I feel like this is one of those topics where, you know, we like to hold discussions on topics that are relevant to a lot of people. This one obviously is relevant to, to just about everybody. So, um, you know, there's, we have a sort of different personal stake in this. Um, I'll introduce folks um, and then we'll, we'll uh, go over a couple basics and then we'll get right into these questions. Um, to my right, Corinne Carey, Senior Campaign Director for Compassion and Choices. Uh, Commissioner Sharif el from the Department of uh, Health. State Department of Health, Kathy Bennett, uh, President and CEO of the New Jersey Hospital Association, Adelisa Perez from direct, uh, Director of Quality with the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute, excuse me, and Christopher Kellogg, uh, he's a social worker and founder of Nightingale, New Jersey, and he'll tell you more about that. Um, but as you heard, as you probably well know by now, um, you know, here we are in the Garden State, we spend a lot of money on end-of-life care. Um, some research suggests as much as 20% more than other states. Um, 
apparently one in four people here die in hospitals. It's the uh, third highest rate nationwide, um, according to recent research. Um, you know, it's, a, it's unique in some senses, this topic, but as I'm saying, everybody has a story. Mine involves um, an 85-year-old uh, mother who was hospitalized last summer and, and uh, spent several months in the hospital and nursing home and is now home, but it certainly opened my eyes to, to sort of these decisions and the, and the issues um, around this. Her big issue right now is that she's not drinking enough water. Um, I was talking to the commissioner about that earlier. <laughs> so. It's a real challenge, as we know. Um, work is going on to improve this, um, and, and that's what we're going to talk about, uh, how these organizations represented here are involved in that, um, and that is a good thing, as some of the earlier um, presentations have suggested, because of the baby boomer generation. Um, we now have, I believe, 1.35 million seniors in the state. Um, that's a number that's expected to grow by two-thirds uh, through 2030. So it's a problem that is just going to get um, more, larger and, and more important. So with that, I'm going to turn the mic over. You have your own mic. Great. Excellent. We'll start with Corinne and um, just go around and everybody's going to give you a little bit about uh, what brings them, what they do and what brings them to the table here today. So you heard a little bit about Compassion and Choices. We're the nation's oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit working to improve care at the end of life. And there's plenty of information on the table about our organization and what we do. But I thought it might be helpful to tell you how I came to be at Compassion and Choices. I was teaching a class at the City University of New York on um, the politics of health. And it was before, during, and after the Affordable Care Act passed. Um, and many of you in the room, maybe all of you, will remember the issue of death panels that nearly tanked the Affordable Care Act. Um, and it really was uh, an interpretation of a single provision within the Affordable Care Act that was painted as the creation of a death panel uh, that the government would run to tell you when your grandmother had used up enough resources and was ready to go and, and would be sort of sentenced to die. These were the kind of terms that were used to frighten people. Um, I thought this is terrible, but also a perfect case study, study for my class. And so I created a module about the politics of fear and we talked about these death panels. Um, and, and I started reading um, more by Atul Gawande. I'm sure some of you know who he is. He wrote a book called Being Mortal. But the, the piece that struck me was a piece that he wrote for The New Yorker called Letting Go. Um, and it was, a, it was about a number of patients that he had and uh, the decisions that their families had to make at the end of life about, about letting go. Um, all of this was very fascinating to me academically. It made for a lively class. And then my father was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, he, uh, you know, I was living five hours away. My mother was caring for him. And one of the first things that I talked to her about was hospice, because I knew the statistics. I knew that people entered hospice far later than when it might benefit them. My mother didn't want to hear it. Her providers wouldn't talk about it. Um, I thankfully had the flexibility uh, at my job to, to travel home and care for both my mother and my father. My mother needed the care. Um, and I uh, you know, went to a number of those last chemotherapy sessions with my father. 
uh, later learned that those chemotherapy sessions probably shortened his life, definitely, definitely impacted the quality of his life at the end. Had we not done those, um, you know, he might have enjoyed more sentient time with us. Um, but we finally did, after a terrible, terrible pain emergency, uh, got him into hospice and he passed away 48 hours later which is a little bit longer than some people are, are able to get into hospice. That experience has so profoundly affected me. I remember um, you know, rushing him to the emergency room for that pain emergency. Uh, and when we got him home, you know, he fell, we felt guilty, he had a cut over his eye. It was just my mother felt terrible. When hospice came in, those people um, are angels. They really were. They. Um, they helped us see that we, we needed to open the windows and put on music and, and be lighter around my dad and not, not worry so much about what was next. We had the comfort pack. We were trained about how to, how to do that and how to give him the medication. Um, I don't think I could have dealt with that last day without those folks providing that support. So for me, um, when Compassion and Choices uh, was hiring a campaign director to look at expanding end-of-life choices for people, and I saw that Compassion and Choices was the organization that stuck around after that death panel provision was excised from the Affordable Care Act, and we worked to make sure that there were final rules at the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare to pay for conversations uh, for providers to have with people about what they wanted at the end of life. I knew that this organization was the right one for me. So I'll just sort of leave it there. There's a whole lot to talk about about what we do and what I do, um, but I, I am grateful for hospice, and I, I, I wish that my dad had had a little bit more time uh, to enjoy with us with that kind of care that was provided. Thank you for sharing all that. And I find that so interesting because one of my dear friends who was perfect support for me this summer, um, her father went into hospice and, and she is the biggest advocate for hospice and it turns out he was in hospice actually in, in her case it was a facility in the community, but he spent less than 36 hours there. But it, that, that, that interaction, that, that you know, the, the care before he got there, I mean, even though we're talking about just days, was so profound and important that she talks about it all the time. So it's interesting. Sorry, Commissioner, please. So um, we obviously have a big stake in this at the Department of Health. Uh, our charge is to protect uh, and uh, advance public health throughout the state. And I want to just help by framing this. I really do believe that New Jersey has among the best hospitals and the best healthcare systems in the country. But we are failing at this as a state. Um, you heard the statistics from Lilo. Uh, we have way too many people receiving aggressive care at the end of life. Uh, we're not doing enough to promote advanced directives and having the difficult discussions that Mike was describing uh, when he talked about the innovative work they're doing at Holy Name. And we haven't yet set up the systems to do it right, to support clinicians at the point of care, to support families in beginning those discussions. And that's what we really try to do uh, out of the department. We have the Governor's Advisory Council for end-of-life care. Uh, they were charged with coming up with a comprehensive set of recommendations 
to move the needle on this, and we really drew from the state's experts, both from a clinical setting and advocacy setting, and folks from the Goals of Care Coalition and other advocates um, that really have tried to advance uh, what we're doing in end-of-life care. And we really had recommendations that fell into three categories. The first is, what can we do to uh, better support uh, both hospitals, uh, sites of care, clinics, and patients from a system standpoint? Uh, whether it's an electronic system or uh, the regulatory system, to increase the likelihood that these conversations are happening and end-of-life care is offered to more people and earlier in their care trajectory. Um, and that speaks to so much work that is happening, not just out of the department, uh, but elsewhere. You have Kathy up here who's gonna talk to you in a minute about Pulse, an extremely important tool, a registry that allows for uh, folks, no matter where they are, to have their advanced directive on file and accessible to clinicians. We're trying to take that work and make it more easily accessible on electronic health records with an initiative called the New Jersey Health Information Network. It's our statewide health information exchange that now 65 out of 72 acute care hospitals have signed on uh, to begin exchanging data. So there's a lot of work happening from a system standpoint. The second thing is what can we do to better support clinicians, the people who have patients, know their patients, or maybe seeing them even for the first time in the emergency room or in the hospital setting. Um, and that has a lot to do with training. And it's not just training in what end-of-life care is and the options available to patients. It's not just book training. It's training on how to approach those conversations because these can be the most difficult conversations you can have with your patients. I'm trained in radiation oncology. Um, I've uh, seen patients in the emergency room, in the inpatient setting, who've never had these conversations and they're on the cusp of really deteriorating uh, and near the end of life. And it's so difficult to see that because it, uh, you see folks who didn't have to be in the situation they're in. Um, and so that has to do with formal training programs, but it also has to do with making sure you set a culture, like what Mike is trying to set at Holy Name, where this is part of, it has to be part of what we do as a healthcare system. Uh, and then finally, what are we doing to reach out to families and patients and the broader community? Um, to have them know that it's an option to discuss these issues and to draw their physician, their nurse, their clinician into these discussions will only help. Uh, the pull effect of having someone say, you know, uh, I'm concerned, I really wanna make sure I'm taken care of uh, when I'm near the end of life, my family isn't seeing me suffer. Uh, these are things that uh, we need to do as a state, we need to do as a community to raise awareness about this issue. And we're trying to tackle that from a public health awareness standpoint as well. So I'll stop there, uh, and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. We're going to talk a little bit more in detail about Pulsed and, and you know, sort of how that came about. So we even have a, another video on that. So. Well, good morning, everybody. I've got to say, it's kind of ironic that on a gray, dreary, rainy Thursday, we're here talking about death. <laughs> but, you know, let's be honest. You know, I, I think everybody here, if I said, who's experienced loss in their life, would raise their hand right? But, you know, I think one of the most interesting things is that we have all of these euphemisms to describe death and dying. You know, you know, I just use one, like, who's experienced a loss of life? You know, we talk about people passing, 
that they've transitioned or they're no longer with us. And you know, when I take a look at all the different system pieces that have to happen, whether it's what clinicians do or what social workers can do or what we can do from an IT perspective to better capture the documented choices, you know, at its heart before you can even get there, we've got to get to the human side of this and start having really tough conversations that we're not really comfortable having. These are conversations about death and dying. And you know, it's okay because to have them, because I, I gotta be honest, despite the most tremendous advances we've had in medical care over the past half you know, century, that you know, we haven't been able to solve to one thing. We still have a 100% mortality rate. Yep, we can all agree. Now, so you know, if you look at that and you think about it, you know, it's kind of interesting that you know, we haven't made planning what we want end of life to be and what, we, what our goals are, not just of care, but what our goals are for living until we're not alive anymore, that we haven't made it a priority. And so, you know, as we start to have the conversation today, I think, you know, Mike, you know, you really hit on it. When people are at Villa, they've actually said to you, what is our goal? What do I want to be around for? And, you know, typically, and, and I think Mike would tell, say this if I gave him the mic back, it, they're not going to say, it's a, I want quantity of days. They're telling you, I want quality of life. I want to see that first communion. I want to be there for that bat mitzvah. I want to be there for a wedding. I just want to be there for spring. I want to see the crocuses come up. It's all these different goals, small, large, family, nature. It doesn't matter. That's what everyone's driving towards. So, you know, when I take a look at it, you know, it, it, I, and, I, and I ask, if we know that that's what folks really want, then how did we get to this place that during the last six months of life, most of our seniors are in a hospital in an intensive care unit anywhere from 4.3 to nine days? Think about that. Is that the choice that they really want or that they really would have made if they had had the capacity to plan? And this is why it's so critical we start having these conversations and start to have them now and that we start thinking about how to have these conversations. And let me tell you, they're tough because it's terrifying. Who wants to talk about the unknown? Who's like worried? You know, I'll ask this. Who's sitting there saying, gosh, I wonder if there's gonna be pain. I wonder if I'm like going to be disabled. I wonder what it's going to be like. And is it those fears that keep us from moving on? You know, or is it just the fear of loss? I mean, you know, I think about it, and like, you know, Jersey's maybe a really good example of it, but we are an acquisitive society. We love things. We love to buy things, right? We love to own and to have. We sure don't like to let go. I mean, let's be honest, Marie Kondo has not helped us here in New Jersey. So, you know, if you say that, and you know, we have problems even letting go of things, think about letting go of people. So, you know, I, I would argue as, as we look at this, you know, our mission at NJHA is to improve the health of New Jerseyans. And improving health, it's even improving their health at end of life so that we're focused on the quality of life, managing symptoms, making sure that they're the right decisions. And I've got to be honest, this isn't news. Ten years ago, in 2009, NJHA, its member organizations, stakeholders in the area, advocates, clinicians, you know, the Department of Health, all came together and did the 2000, in 2009, a blueprint for action for end of life. And guess what? 
those recommendations are still the same recommendations that have been made in every single report since. We have seen them in the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute strategic plan. We've seen them from the Healthcare Executives Leadership Academies, end of life cohorts that have worked in 2017 and 2018 on recommendations and, um, and solutions to what has been an inability to plan. And I guess what I'd argue, and this is where I disagree a little bit with Mike, because he's looking at the centers and the circles and how they overlap. And I'll say the reason why I look at it a little bit differently is I have the luxury to. He's running an institution and is thinking about the finances. And I'm taking a look at a mission and I'm saying, you know, what we first have to do is say, this isn't a question about funding. This isn't a question about, you know, uh, failures of the system itself for clinicians. This is actually for us an issue that's human of magnitude, a human scale. How do we actually talk about death? How do we talk about dying? How do we start to normalize that conversation? Thank you. It's interesting because my father, uh, as you were saying that, my father, I was thinking back, he actually passed away years ago, but very, very quickly in the hospital, sudden diagnosis, cancer. Um, but, you know, here is a very, very active and alive person, and those last weeks of his life, all we talked about were medical procedures. And it just occurs to me that that's... It, that's a, I mean, what, that's not the, the, why is that my last conversation with him? Although there were some hilarious conversations about morphine and how great it was in there, but that's just an aside. But Adelisa, please. Sure. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Um, I thought I'd just give you a little bit of background about the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan, multi-stakeholder advocate for healthcare quality, and our mission is really to improve the safety, quality, and affordability of um, healthcare for all New Jersey residents. And, you know, we talk about how much, how important the conversation is needed at the community level, and we conducted a statewide poll on end-of-life care in 2016 with the Rutgers Eagleton Center, and we found that 60% of New Jersey adults were comfortable with the idea of aging, and they have thought about their wishes for medical care at the end of life, but alarmingly, 60% had not put those wishes in writing, and almost 40% have never had conversations expressing their wishes for the end of life. And we currently actually have another poll, statewide poll on end of life out in the field now, and we hope to share those results in early April, but we see that there's a lot of work to be done at the community level. And so that's why we created Conversation of Your Life, or um, COIL as it's known, to really promote community-based conversations around advanced care planning. And so what started as a pilot in three New Jersey communities has really transformed into being active in over 11 counties and really helping to open the dialogue around advanced care planning. Um, COIL promotes or educates patients and their caregivers on how to have these conversations on end-of-life care concepts and on how to document their wishes and, and really, you know, choosing a healthcare proxy who will help align with what your wishes are. And we're having these conversations in all sorts of settings from um, community centers to parks to libraries and places of worship and all through the efforts of volunteers who really have a passion for wanting to improve end-of-life care in New Jersey and on a personal note as a registered nurse I've really seen situations where 
you know, patients and families have talked about their wishes and, you know, they've, they're in writing and they've de delegated a, a healthcare proxy who will really help align the patient's wishes with the care that they'll actually receive versus situations where there was no discussion of their wishes, where nothing is in writing and they are drastically different outcomes for the patients and for their families and for the healthcare providers who have been taking care of them for um, what can be a couple of days to a couple of weeks to a couple of months. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really inspiring all the work that we're doing, um, particularly the impact that COIL is having in the community. It's, it's a culture change. They're helping to um, initiate these conversations. And, you know, culture change is hard. Um, it's a momentous challenge, but with the uh, collaboration between COIL volunteers and healthcare systems and hospice providers, the state, we're really making a difference um, and simply by just having a conversation, by openly talking about end-of-life care and helping to educate uh, the community. So um, I'm excited to be a part of it and, and thank you for having me this morning. Thank you. I'm, yeah, I want to hear more as we get into this about those conversations because, yeah, I mean, I think as I've had, we've all probably had personal experience with that kind of, and it is it is challenging. And I, you know, I think you can probably tell us a little bit more about about some of those challenges and how to get over them. Um, Chris, not, last but not least, I mean, Chris, I think Chris is there. His his organization is onto a new model here that I think has some promising uh, opportunity for the future. But tell us tell us what you're doing. Thank you very much, and I'd like to be able to thank every single one of us that are here because we are all pioneers. I'm looking around the audience, I'm looking around the panel and I see potential care receivers, I see potential primary care providers, I see healthcare professionals, I see physicians, I see representatives from New Jersey Assembly. It starts right here to be able to have that quality of life that all of us want for ourselves and our loved ones. So for that we all need to be commended and thank you. Hearing the stories that we've shared reminds me of one of our very first clients that came into our office, the door slams open and this gentleman in a three-piece suit starts saying, I have done this for my loved one. I have gone and spoke to this professional. I have done tests and arms waving, moving, animated, and I just let him go. He went on for about three minutes and the last thing he said before I offered a suggestion is, he said, I'm tired of making bad decisions for my mom and dad. And the simple thing that we asked was, what was your mom and dad's voice? This is a power gentleman on the New York Stock Exchange. And he's a man of action. He fixes things. He delegates. But to be able to do that, we need to be able to make informed decisions for our loved ones. And to be able to do that, it goes back to what is the definition? What's most important to all of us here today is making sure that our voice is heard. And what does that translate? It translates to us, no matter where we are in the age spectrum, having that power, control, dignity that will give ourselves the peace of mind that we want, but also the secondary gain, what our loved ones want for us. The only way that we are able to do this is being able to have early interventions. It's never too early to be able to have these conversations. Because at the end of the day, if we aren't more proactive, like what all of us are coming to, it's too late because 
Common sense and emotion do not play well together. It needs to be effectively written down. I'm looking around again and seeing everybody in the audience and on the panel. We want a quality of life, but all of our own definitions of a quality of life can be very different. One is not superior to the other, and it's not fair for us not to be able to guess. Challenges occur when we have to try to figure out what our loved ones want. Being able to pause and say what is important to them so that their voice is heard. We try to do that at the early stages for all of our clients and being a wordsmith, mature life planning, so that people are able to make those decisions and be able to come up with the specific expectations so that their voice is heard, so that, again, that power, control, and dignity is defined by them so that the handles are provided to their loved ones so that if the time comes when they're not able to make those decisions themselves, the handles are in place for their loved ones and they know what their loved ones want. And most importantly, their loved ones are willing to do what they want. Because just because you are a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister, does not mean that you may potentially be able to make those hard decisions when it comes time. So you need to make sure that they know and they're willing to execute what your tough wishes are. Because at the end of the day, when all of that's in place, we do have the peace of mind and there are hidden gifts. And also, we're looking around and the one thing that we all agree is that we all get there from here. And it's never, ever too soon to start being able to make these decisions ahead of time so that we, again, have power, control, dignity, peace of mind, and our voices heard throughout the process. And that's what Nightingale and Jay provides for their clients, but this model can be everywhere. And we're all coming from that direction. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think, let's back up a little bit. Um, I'm sort of curious to hear from people about how we got to this place. Um, I mean, I'm thinking there are obviously cultural reasons, um, you know, cultural both within patients and families, but also um, within sort of the provider community. I don't know, Commissioner, I'm going to start with you sort of as thinking about it as a provider and as a, as a regulator. How did we get here? Thank you. So it's really impossible to separate this topic in particular from deep-seated values, beliefs, culture, faith. Um, and I think the root cause has to draw at least partly from that, our culture, I mean, Kathy's wording of this was perfect. The acquisitive culture we have. Um, we are a society, we're a country that doesn't give up. Um, and the narrative has to change that having these conversations is not a, are not concessions, it's not giving up. Um, it is doing right by yourself and for your family to lead to the actual outcome that people want and are easily convinced that they want if they start having these discussions, which is a better quality of life, uh, the ability to spend the last moments uh, with your family, with your uh, loved ones, 
Um, a story that I cite, and I always risk bringing up this topic because the conversation tends to stick on it uh, when I do, and I don't intend that, but uh, the story I tell about medical marijuana when I do my grand rounds is the story of a child who had a terminal illness, Ewing sarcoma. Um, and by the way, uh, full 25% of folks in the program are elderly individuals, many of whom are taking it as part of their end-of-life care regimen. Um, medical marijuana was the only remedy that allowed him to be a child for the last couple of months of his life and spend the last moments he had with his family uh, in a meaningful way that they could remember and enjoy. I mean, the cocktail of medications that he was getting, uh, prescription medications just weren't working. And so framing stories like that around end-of-life care, I think, help us uh, start to uh, bust through some of the cultural issues. I also think, um, as you mentioned, Lilo, it's also about how we grow up as providers in the healthcare system, and I'll speak from that perspective as well. I got one one-hour class on how to approach difficult discussions in healthcare, and they weren't necessarily just focused on end-of-life discussions. That's all difficult decisions, one hour. All difficult decisions, one hour in medical school. Because those never come school. up when right. you're a doctor. It's not. And, but we, when they hit you in the face, is in residency. When you have to actually get someone's code status, which is the basically the bare minimum of what you can do, asking if they want to be uh, resuscitated um, if you know a crisis happens, um, and you you ask that in the emergency room for someone who has a terminal illness, and they tell you. Uh, we've never had this discussion before. Um, and so, you know, that is a big system issue because we haven't invested enough in education and in the proper level of training in medical training throughout, not just in medical school, but throughout residency and even after in continuing medical education because this is the type of thing that isn't just about the knowledge, as I mentioned, it's about even strategies, and you have to practice this. It's not just reading it. You have to have a standardized patient, or you have to have someone who literally role plays with you because you see how difficult it is before you have to go into the real setting and do it. So I think those speak to a lot of the, the root causes. Kathy, you're nine. So I have to say, you know, I, I think the commissioner hit the nail on the head. You know, this because culturally we're not having conversations. The time that the conversation takes place is in absolutely the wrong setting. It's when, you know, a traumatic or acute event has happened that's related to somebody's life-limiting illness. And for the first time, there's a dawning realization that the diagnosis also had a prognosis. And sometimes, you know, when, when you have these conversations, it's not saying, as you say, we give up. You still do all that is feasible, but you also have to have, you know, these honest conversations. And, you know, an hour to have an honest conversation about prognosis is not sufficient. And to say that it should occur in a setting where, you know, there's the constant sound of activity and a constant sense of urgency is not the right place to have it either. And so when we talk about what are these systems we need, we need systems in place that are systems where individuals are talking a whole lot earlier. I mean, it was kind of funny, you know, I was thinking about this um, in relation to what, I think it was what uh, Chris had just said, but I was thinking, how many folks in the room have children? Now, 
how many of you with children would say, you know what, your mom and I, your dad and I, we want to go on the trip of the lifetime. We want you to plan it. How many of you would actually give them your credit card, let them go to it? <laughs> yeah, okay, so you're getting where I'm going with this, right? So why, why, think about this, even from an individual <laughs> perspective, would you wait and actually ask your loved ones, your kids, to have that conversation why would you ask them to do it and make these decisions? You know, and, and, and that's you know, one of the things I, I think about when we think about end of life and we talk about end of life care planning. And why would we ask them to do it when they're probably being traumatized themselves from all that's going on around them? And why would we be asking doctors who are not equipped to have that conversation because they've come through an emergency department and they're being asked quickly, what do you want? What code? You know, why are we asking there? Why haven't we backed this up and said, as a normal part of primary care practice? By the way, just as a normal part of being human, why aren't we talking about this? And you know, it, it's kind of funny, but if you really think about it, how many you know young women you know dreamed about what their wedding day would look like and have spent lots of time and you know lots of you know parent money on this dream wedding, and then you move it along and you say, gosh, this other big event is at my end of life. And if I'm thinking I'm gonna live it to the very end, and I wanna live like Joe did at you know, Villa, I'm talking about who do I wanna come in the room? Who do I wanna see? Who do I need to make amends with? What music do I wanna hear? Those are all part of your planning. So for me, you know, it is. There's you know, a system piece, a training piece, there's a cultural piece, and then the key to it all is making sure we document it. Yeah, um, Corinne, I'm thinking, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking, um, thank you. Share here too. Um, I'm thinking about what you were saying about the death panels because that was such a that was it, it that was sort of the first time I remember hearing about um, end of life care as sort of a public policy issue. I mean, it was it, had it not had this not been a conversation before then? I mean, was anybody talking about it, or how do you how do you see it sort of evolving publicly like that? It's interesting. I think um, sometimes some of the worst experiences provide fertile ground for discussion. And so in, in those horrible uh, moments where fear was being drummed up um, in opposition to a bill, it was sort of a red herring, right? I mean, it wasn't really opposition to um, having these conversations. It was opposition to the Affordable Care Act. Um, and the vehicle for killing that act was, was this frightening people no about the death intent. panels. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, I, there were definitely conversations happening. I mean, our organization has worked for decades helping people have these conversations at the end of life. And if I can just make a little plug, we have these uh, booklets on the table, um, my end of life decisions that take people through uh, all kinds of ways to have the conversation. There are model forms and addendums, um, even an addendum on what to do in case of dementia. Um, you know, should, should someone develop dementia, what kind of care would they want? I know I've also visited uh, your organization's website, uh, Adelisa, and, and there's tons of resources for people. Um, some resonate better than others, but many people in this industry have been having these conversations for decades. I think that the death panels issue, as horrible as it was, really brought to light these conversations. And in some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it. You have to work your way through this politics of fear to get to uh, the right public health, public policy decision. 
an interesting point. Um, so we do now have this, um, I guess we're, we're lucky in New Jersey, we now have several plans that have been put out by public organizations that um, give us, say, roadmaps to, to address this. Um, there was the report that we've talked a little bit about from the, uh, the End of Life Advisory Council, which came out in November. Um, Dr. Allen Hall talked about sort of those three buckets. Um, there were a lot of interesting specifics in there, um, ranging from having the, the, the need for some kind of a statewide coalition or office to continue this conversation because, as we all know, sometimes these reports get issued and put on the shelf and that's very good, then we're done with that. So we need, you know, the suggestion was to keep that going. Um, there was a lot of talk about education and training for providers. Um, there was an interesting recommendation to include a, um, an indication on your driver's license about how you felt about, um, uh, I guess, your code status, essentially. Um, the point being, we already have a mechanism to designate um, organ donation on the, on the driver's license, and unfortunately, that's sometimes the place that people would be looking to make these decisions. Um, and then there was a fascinating one about mobile, use of mobile intensive care units, um, sort of like ambulance squads, but that would essentially be dispatched to treat people with chronic conditions at home, to keep them at home so they're not presenting in the hospital. Um, a lot of interesting ideas. I want to start with Adelisa because the Healthcare Quality Institute put out its own um, strategic plan for this, which may have predated you, I realize now, but I'm sure you're up to speed. Um, but, but just sort of tell us, you know, where there's some common ground there, if there's certain ones that yeah. stuck out to you. And I thought you might ask, so I brought some notes, Good. so Good. don't mind me looking down. Um, so our plan really focuses on four areas, and again, a lot of these um, recommendations that we have very much align with the one that the Governor's um, Advisory Council put out as well, but our plan focuses on four areas, so it focuses on uh, technology, payment, education, and culture. And so with technology, um, we talked about an electronic registry for the pulse and making sure that that's connected on a HIN so that it's able to be um, accessed from any location by any provider or any patient or their families even. Um, payment, as always, increasing reimbursement and really looking at how we can expand reimbursement so that these valuable consultations are being utilized and they are being um, promoted for a greater use. Um, education, I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit, so um, I, I'll just touch on that. There's a need to provide education and coaching from um, starting in school all the way through current practice. And really culture as well, changing the culture um, at a community and at a provider level. So um, I'll just share my thoughts on the community level, if that's okay. Um, because I think this extends beyond the world of just medicine and healthcare providers. There's a whole other aspect to this. Um, and it, again, just starts with the need to have the conversation and the need to really educate patients and their caregivers on how to have these conversations and you know, our role as healthcare professionals to help them feel comfortable in having these conversations. And so that's really why at the College Institute we started this effort to change the culture through conversation of your life. And 
I'll just briefly tell you a little bit about um, how it works. So there's a, a, each Coyle County has a task force made up of volunteers who are leaders and members of the community, um, such as mayors, health officers, surrogates, um, there's clergy members and uh, librarians on the task force. And we also partner with health professionals from health systems, hospice providers, nursing homes, um, who are also do have their own efforts in, in educating the community. Um, but what I think makes Coyle so unique is its ability to bring all these people who each have um, you know, a shared passion to improve end-of-life care and to all bring with them expertise from their respective fields together to, um, as a group, plan and lead local programming. And the programming is it's, you know, engaging and it's disarming. We utilize community book reads. We utilize facilitated film screenings, um, panel discussions. Sometimes we have an author come in and there's game nights um, where we use the Go Wish, which is a card game to help participants prioritize their end-of-life wishes. And it's really focused on taking these conversations outside of the hospitals and outside of the provider's office where they really need to be happening much earlier in the community setting um, where residents feel comfortable having these conversations. We've um, been very lucky to also be able to bring COIL events to other cultures. Um, so last year, you know, with our partners at Holy Name, actually, we were able to host COIL events for the Chinese and Korean communities. We hope to bring these um, introduced conversations on end of life to Spanish and veteran communities in the next year. There are many upcoming community events throughout the state of New Jersey um, in honor of National Healthcare Decisions Day in April, and specifically COIL has many events going on where we've invited local leaders to participate and really um, you know, lead by example. They'll be sharing stories of why this is important. They'll be publicly signing their own advanced directives, all in an effort to better educate uh, the community. And it's also, you know, just important that we plan ahead for the future. It's, and we see through the COIL events that there is a need for this information. The residents are sharing stories. They are asking a ton of questions, um, and they're supporting one another. Um, and I'll just share a quick story that really, you know, I, I heard recently at an event, and it stuck with me, was that there was a daughter talking with her mother, and then suddenly, you know, her mother was having a hard time speaking and she was having a mumbled, garbled language and, and um, she was evidently going through a stroke. And so now they're in the car, rushing to the hospital, stressful situation, high anxiety, frightening for the both of them. And she had to stop and think to herself that she had no idea about the kind of care her mother would want or not want. They had never talked about this before. Her mother had never brought it up. She had never asked. So now in the car, rushing to the hospital, she's trying to have this conversation. And she's trying to ask her mom what her wishes are. And her mom is trying to answer. And um, she said something along the lines of pull the cord. But she needed to know what that meant for her mother. So she's trying to ask these questions. And you know, she thought to herself, this, what a terrible time to have this conversation. And if only they would have had this conversation sooner. And um, you know, her mom ended up being OK, so they didn't need to make those difficult decisions. But oh my god, if they had to, she didn't know, you know what, what she would have done. And it's that kind of effort you know, that we're trying to make with COIL is really to educate patients and caregivers on um, the benefits of advanced care planning and on important advanced care planning documents. Again, it just really starts with a conversation um, on how we can help improve all of this in the community and bringing everyone together really to highlight the importance and, and to start, you know, from that uh, patient level to draw in the providers um, and so that they are better informed conversations on both ends. Um, and so that's kind of what we're trying to do with COIL is, is really affect the community. Thank you. Um, 
I want to get some other responses to the to the report. Um, in particular, Commissioner, if I can ask you about one, we had a question emailed um, in advance from an audience member, um, Yvette uh, Vieira, I believe, a palliative care expert with Atlantic Health, um, who asked specifically about a recommendation, I believe it's number 25, the policy for managing, it, if there should be a state policy to help providers manage inappropriate care requests. And I just love this question because I think it gets to so many elements of, you know, when you're in that emergency situation in the hospital and mom or dad's wishes may conflict with what, you know, you as the son or daughter think. And, and there's just a lot, there's a lot going on in that question. Do you wanna, do you wanna start? Yeah, so I figured I would get that question. Um, he, he had a heads up. So uh, I know what it's like to be on a care team uh, caring for an individual at the end of their life who had not had those discussions, had not filed an advance directive, and were relying on their next of kin to make their care decisions in the ICU. Um, you know, at risk of making people cringe, I'll just mention an example. Um, there was an individual who was so clearly suffering that they started to get um, gangrene in their limbs. Um, they were on, you know, medications we give to sustain blood pressure artificially. Uh, meant to sustain blood pressure when we think the situation can turn around and ultimately they'll be able to sustain their own blood pressure. This patient wasn't, wasn't going to get there. And uh, the patient was there for weeks. Um, and I understand how it feels to uh, try your best to communicate to families next of kin um, and say, this isn't helping your loved one. Um, that said, I think the more productive discussion to have, the biggest bang for our buck, is doubling down as much as we can on the conversations of your life effort, on getting advanced directives in place as early as possible so that we are not getting to that situation. Our mindset around that should be prevention. And so it's really a function of focus. Where should we be investing our time, our discussions, our resources, our systems, to do something that, when explained, is consistent with the vast majority of faiths, traditions, values, uh, even um, concepts of empowerment and political empowerment. I mean, we live in a country that prioritizes liberty. What better way of doing so than to hand the most important decision you can ever make back to the individual about their own life and what they want in terms of life-sustaining treatment? So. It's a function of where I think we can be most productive. Um, and you know, to get into a conversation about when the healthcare system should be making a decision that may or may not be against the wishes of the next of kin, I think is neither um, of high yield in terms of where we are and the room we have to, to make progress, uh, nor is it productive in terms of the public debate. Thank you. Um, other thoughts on the on the report or um, I lied. Take it back. 
Um, no, my, my, the other thing that I find so fascinating about this question, and I do think this is probably something you, I know from talking to your colleagues, Chris, that this is sort of your niche too, is, is, is negotiating these family uh, dynamics, these differences. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because even when you're having these conversations in advance, right, um, you're not always getting everybody on the same same page, and, and in, in an example when the individual in question can speak and articulate and is not, in, you know, unable to, to, to speak, um, even when you have all the pieces right, you still have, um, there's still tension and, and right, tough right. waters to there's, navigate there, right? There's still going to always be a check and balance between the documents that you have in hand. We've had a client, and I think this goes to the healthcare professionals, that if there's one thing that I would implore to any and all healthcare professional is that please stop using the word you in your vocabulary. The scenario that I'd like to share is that we were in a hospital, the son was holding the pulse and a copy of the living will and a healthcare representative, and I understand you need to do your due diligence, make sure T's are crossed, I's are dotted. Started off the conversation. Woman, our client was clearly in distress and declining. Asked our client, are you sure you don't want a central line and a feeding tube for your mom? My inner papa bear kind of got up my, I mean, a lot of things in a poker player is not one of them. My right eye started twitching and I just said, I understand needing to reconfirm, but if I was able to turn back time and still get the right answer was, I just want to confirm that the advanced directives say there is no wish for extraordinary means, i.e. feeding tube and central line, versus having an avalanche of emotion, because my modest observation, barring having the goals, if we are so fortunate to be able to have laid out in front of us, Many older adults aren't afraid of passing, dying, and we can say that word. They're not afraid of dying. What they are afraid of is being in pain and anguish. What they are afraid of is not living in a place that they want to live in and being able to receive the care, the pain management that they want and need. And finally, their perception of being a burden on their loved ones. Those are the three major undercurrents that, again, when I say go back to what is said, what it means, and how it applies, being able to tease that out. So how can we utilize the non-traditional supports, i.e. family, neighbors, who are able to provide certain level of care, utilizing benefits like hospice, bringing in outside agencies like 24-hour aid providers, and again, rallying all the troops to be able to honor those wishes that are in that law so that people, again, have that power, control, dignity, and peace of mind so that their voice is heard throughout the aging process. But that's an interesting example, too, because it sounds to me like the doctor, I mean, as a medical practitioner, you're still facing that sort of dual, I mean, you've got the patient wishes on paper, but you've also, why would a practitioner ask that question, I guess, and I'm, I'm trying to, yeah. 
you know, the, this gets to what um, our, our job is as clinicians, which is uh, to engage patients in their care and to do the right thing from an evidence-based perspective. Uh, but ultimately, the right belongs to the patient on what they, th they believe they should get. And if it's against what you believe to be the right medical decision, that's a conversation you can have hopefully earlier on in the care trajectory so that the patient can find a care team that is willing to engage with them. But our responsibility as clinicians is to communicate where evidence is available, what the evidence says about the care decisions we want to make, and empower the patient to make that decision. I truly believe that that right belongs to the patient and our responsibility is to equip them with as much information as possible to make that decision for themselves. And are, are there training, um, are there training, sorry, specific training or education things that anybody has in mind um, for the provider side before we talk more about the patient and community? Because I feel like um, a lot of this comes down to, to how doctors and other healthcare professionals do their job. I mean, and, and how you make decisions and, and, and clearly there, we have a situation that isn't optimal for, for, for dying um, and for conversations about dying. So, so how do we improve that from the provider side? That was one of the big recommendations in the report. So Kathy, you wanna? Sure, you know, this is I think one of the key areas. As much as we have to do so much from a cultural perspective to normalize and have conversations about death and dying, mm -hmm. we need to support and educate and train a whole host of clinicians who, you know, as the commissioner just said, get about an hour. And, you know, and part of what we've done, for example, at the association um, is back in 2011, created um, a toolkit and an education program about end of life. And it was specifically directed to clinicians. And that's because we don't have things like palliative care fellowships. You know, aspirationally, that would be a great thing to see, to see that there could be, you know, palliative care, you know, being focused on, palliative care being come um, a part of an ordinary primary care practice, uh, end of life conversations taking place there. You know, if we did or we had our ideal system, I think based upon the feedback of those that are in the final stages of life and those that have died and have experienced things like hospice, you've already heard reviews. It would say, back this system up. Let's get the decisions made earlier. Let's know what the path looks like. And when you show up in hospice, and this is one of the challenges, and you know, Joanne Rosen's here from Samaritan, Mike has got the villa, so you've got North and South Jersey covered with two hospice providers who will both say to you, it is hard to keep the lights on because patients arrive here in the last hours of life. And so how do we accelerate decision-making and documentation of it so that patients actually arrive and they see and they care and they create the right sort of environment for somebody to live their last days. Just to add to that, as we um, talk about the importance of having these conversations earlier in the community, it's also important to have these conversations er earlier um, in our schools. Um, and you know, one of the things that we're doing along with Goals of Care Coalition is really talking to the New Jersey medical schools about their current curriculums of end-of-life care and talking about um, how we can better align 
um, a set of core competencies, which would be integrated throughout all of the schools um, and from undergraduate through graduate school to really help align that conversation and, and set up those who aren't in practice yet and start this a little bit earlier. Yeah, there's that future piece, right? Um, we have another question from a couple audience members. Uh, Bob Parker from Newbridge Services, I don't know if he made it today, um, and Jane Boyle from the Alzheimer's Family Support uh, Group, who asked about planning for individuals with special needs, particularly folks who may not have family members who have decision-making um, capacity. So this is a challenge that has a whole other level of intricacies. Um, does anybody have any ideas or want to address that? You know, we're starting to see an emerging field um, in this area around end of life, and it's end of life counseling. And I'll bet you we've got some folks, I know that there's two ladies in the audience that are end of life doulas. I was going to say, I was going to say, this is an issue, an end of life doula, which I had not heard right. about until we were planning this. Um, so we have two of them, and they'll doulas? say, right, yeah, go ahead and raise your hands. I'm giving you a shout out too. Thank you. So, you know, but, but, you know, sort of the importance of it is, they become the navigator of the healthcare proxy, the individual with developmental disabilities. It might be a guardianship issue as well for you know, a facility uh, where maybe the person is a patient. It also, though, brings in the pharmacist. It can bring in social workers. It brings and helps to navigate all of those components. And you know, that's something that you can't underestimate because dying, it's a difficult business. And it's not any one entity, any one person. You know, we, we, we defer to and we default to talking about the clinician or the doctor or the doctor's role. But I gotta say, you know, dying is probably one of the most personal things because what you're dying from is not unlike what anybody else had. And so how do you want your symptoms managed? And how do you actually capture that information so there's good management of symptoms? And you know, what's, you know, what's your threshold? that changes as well. So, you know, again, I take a look and say, you know, I think that these new and evolving models actually provide a really promising pathway, especially for those that are unable to really speak or advocate on their own behalf. And so, you know, this sort of counseling role. Chris, I'd like to hear from you a little bit on this because um, I, when I spoke with one of your colleagues, um, she told me a wonderful story about how you sometimes get calls from, I, I can't remember, we had, a, we had a term for it, but it was like Uncle Lou. It was like the accountant who is close to the family and everybody, you know, he's not a real uncle, but he's the accountant who basically functions as an uncle and he knows everything and he may be the first person who's actually notified when an older person goes into the hospital and he has, you know, life chapter and verse on all these people, um, but he doesn't, he, you know, he, he's not empowered to make these decisions. How do you I mean, when you talk about navigating and you talk about the different people that are involved, tell us a little bit about how you guys do that, that work to bring that group um, together. People, and I believe this wholeheartedly, is that beyond good intentions, all of us have our emotional threshold. Um, people can become emotionally paralyzed. And we're oftentimes with the older generations, they believe you have the good Lord on the right hand and your doctor on the left hand. And I think it's important that we need to be able to give everyone on that care team, whether it be physicians, families, and most importantly, patients, those informed decisions and being able to ask lots and lots of questions. There's no, bad, there's no way to ask too many questions. Like having your children plan your vacation, 
you're not going to go out and say, I'm going to go, I want a red car, and that's my red car. You're going to want to know the safety inspections, the miles per gallon. When we have conversations with the doctors, what is the optimal scenario? What is the probable? And what is the worst case? And how is that in line with the questions and the values and the wishes and the expectations of the people that we're with? Um, we have different clients that we are healthcare proxies. We have different clients that are out through across the country when their emergency button is hit, we get the call first and we are the eyes and ears and boots on the ground so we can explain things real time to them to be able to go back to that answer. Right, right. Anybody else? We, Mr. I'll just say, you know, this is the first time I've heard of the concept of end-of-life doulas. And I'm going to speak to you afterward. Um, but I'm assuming, I'm drawing upon my experience with my wife. We had a doula for both of our kids. And the function of the doula I did not understand until I was in the thick of it myself with my wife. Um, the doula brings, bo brought both of us together in ways that otherwise I think wouldn't have happened at least intuitively and allowed us to progress through the birth. Obviously the birth was much more difficult for my wife. Um, <laughs> not saying that, but, but it brought us emotionally so close together throughout the process. Um, and I think it made it easier not just for her, but also for uh, me to be supportive to her. And I think that concept makes so much sense for end of life discussions, for palliative care, hospice care, uh, to have someone there who can draw, whether it's a, uh, an ex of kin defined legally or a legal guardian, if you're talking about a developmentally disabled individual, to draw upon folks that know the person the best to be able to make decisions that they're more comfortable with and the best decision, I think, for the individual. So I'm fascinated and we'll talk to both of you after this. And I think going back to the original question, this idea about solo elders, elders who are aging and dying on their own when they don't have a healthcare proxy that is a, um, that is a loved one. Um, you know, that it doesn't mean that they're alone. Maybe they don't have someone in their family that they trust enough to be that person. I uh, have had experiences with dying people who have employed doulas for that purpose, that doulas provide that kind of comfort and grounding for people who are dying alone. It's very interesting because uh, the state is, is doing a lot with doulas for the birth process, but you know now we have a new. I, thank you for bringing bringing this to our to our attention. Um, we're going to take a quick look at a short video now um, that really breaks down a little bit the Pulsed um, sort of it's kind of news you can use on Pulsed um, and how to actually do it, and then we'll talk a little bit more on the other side about how that came about and uh, some of the trials and tribulations of getting us to where we are on Pulsed. Thanks to an agreement between the State Department of Health and the New Jersey Hospital Association, every resident has the option to register their end-of-life directives online. It's an electronic database called the PULST. It stands for Practitioner Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, a healthcare planning tool that makes patients and their medical team partners in guaranteeing health wishes are carried out. You can find the green forms at the NJHA or Department of Health websites. There's even an app. 
Once you fill it out online, your doctor signs it and uploads it to the registry. It stays in your medical records, no matter if you go to an emergency department, nursing home, or specialist. Healthcare professionals can access your file from a laptop or a smartphone. We know exactly what they need. And then secondary, the patient, probably more importantly, they have it, they're in power with their pulse form now. To take that pulse form and have it on their iPhone, and better yet, make that available in a secured way. All this is very secure, that's important, to all their loved ones. It's not to be confused with other documents like an advanced directive, nor does it replace these orders. Pulsed is designed for seriously ill or frail patients, most commonly but not limited to the elderly, to have more control over their end-of-life care. It's an actual medical order, and it's valid in all healthcare settings. The document specifies the types of medical treatment desired toward the end of life. The goal is to prevent unwanted or medically ineffective treatment, and equally important, reducing patient and family suffering. So... There's the famous post form. And um, yeah, we've, so we've talked a lot about how important the conversations are and how important it is to document these things, which brings us to POLST, which is the sort of the state's format for doing that process. Um, getting here has, has been um, a challenge. It's taken a little time. Um, and I believe the commissioner said earlier, 65, uh, 65 of 72 hospitals are now part of the information exchange. Um, tell us a little bit about how this, some of the, tell us why this is so important to this interoperability, not just for Pulse, but in general, and we'll talk a little bit about how we got here. Well, both of you, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, of course, we'll let Kathy go into some of the details about the Pulse platform itself. To frame how it's connected to our efforts for interoperability, which is, can be a very technical pie-in-the-sky topic to talk about. Um, the point of seamless information exchange, the biggest beneficiary of that is the patient and their families. Um, the ability for a clinician, physician, nurse practitioner, whoever is taking care of that patient, to have as much information as possible about that patient's history, what they've gone through, um, what they're allergic to, their medication list, uh, impacts every single decision you make for that patient going forward. And unfortunately, uh, we've lived in a world, even with electronic health records up until now, where unless you've been a patient who's consistently gone to that side of care, that clinic, that hospital, wherever it might be, that clinician will not have that information at least in time to make the decision. So the idea is that if you connect all hospitals, clinics, uh, substance use disorder clinics, mental health clinics, um, you know, sites of care throughout the state where patients are seen to the same network, you can start to push that information right to the point of care so that clinicians will have it when they make decisions on your behalf. Cannot think of a better application of that than end-of-life care decisions and advanced directives and pulsed Because it's all too common as I mentioned that someone comes in in a dire situation to an emergency room uh, urgent care setting wherever it might be and You can't ask the patient what their desire Desires are for end-of-life care what their planning has been and they may have already gone through that and if they're on vacation, let's say they're in Bergen County and they're vacationing in Cape May, and they go to that emergency room, 
in Cape May. That hospital won't have access to that, and next of kin might not be immediately available. So this is an, a perfect application of what we're trying to do with the Health Information Network, and that has to do with building the value, the utility, through what we call use cases uh, that push the information in a usable way to those clinicians. And yeah, Kathy, I'd like to hear from you. Now, you've seen this from both sides. I forgot to mention, but Kathy was, of course, the previous Commissioner of Health in the state of New Jersey. So she saw this from, from the departmental side, but now you've had the joy of actually being pushing this into practice from what was a pilot program in a handful of counties, I believe, to now it's obviously building. So tell us a little, some of the challenges and, and where we are now. So, you know, the POLST actually, it's the Practitioner Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. I always like to sort of, you know, remind everybody what it stands for because we defer uh, or default to uh, acronyms. And sometimes it's hard to get your, you know, arms wrapped around really what it is. So it's a law that took, it took effect in 2011. And when it began, it was on a piece of paper. And actually, so that we all knew it was the piece of paper, it was printed on green paper. Laugh, right? But I just want you to think about the number of seniors that are living at home and have life-limiting illnesses. And, you know, an emergency occurs, and I want you to think of what was taking place. EMTs come into the home. Do you believe that they're looking on the refrigerator by the telephone or your secret drawer for your green piece of paper? Not at all. Or your medical files stacked yeah, in the corners. And so, you might have already made your decisions, you might have done your advanced care planning, and guess what the EMTs are gonna do when they walk in the door? Yeah, try to save you. That's, I mean, that's what they're trained to do. So for us, you know, it was, we we're looking to also to not just connecting, you know, in terms of clinicians and providers, but also connecting who the emergency responders are so that when they come in, when they're on the ride and they've been routed, you can bring up and say, is there a pulse on file for this patient? Because right from the start, it tells you what you can and cannot do. If you're going to respect and honor what the individual's wishes are, if you actually say the priority was the autonomy of that decision making. And so this became a really good thing um, to start to look at for automation purposes. And we started to take a look, and, and I gotta be honest, as with all good things, we began mired in a piece of like web-based technology. And like with all good things, that quickly aged before, you know, the concept was even drawn on a piece of paper. So we still have the repository in the background, but you know, probably the most effective piece of this is, is actually the very simple you know, app that you can bring up on your phone. You know, the key to it is that you can't do it yourself because it's a practitioner order. Um, so that means that you have to have a nurse APN or you need to have a physician actually signing the order on your behalf. But you have it available because after they do sign it, it stays with you. It's on your phone. You can share it with your loved ones. You can share it with your family members. For those of you that still want to keep your head buried in the sand and not have that critical conversation, your loved ones can know because you can just go ahead and share it, send them a link, and let them come in and take a look at it. It guides decision making. And that becomes really important today because we have an awful lot of families where children have moved and they're not in the same town, even if they're in New Jersey, 
It could even be just 20 miles away, and if you're in North Jersey, you know that's like five hours. But, sorry, <laughs> but, but you know, even with that, you know, we know they're in different states. They know what you want, what your desires are. And that kind of got me to, back to that, you know, bigger point I was making to begin with. If we can get clarity and we can get you engaged and we can start having primary care or your specialist, because let's be honest, you know, New Jersey's leading causes of death have been pretty much the same and they're chronic diseases. You know, we're talking, it's cardiac, it's stroke, and stroke has the underlying for you know some vascular diseases, you know like you know uh, like diabetes and hypertension. We know that it's cancer. We you know we know that it's you know Alzheimer's, dementia. Those two kind of aren't separated out. But knowing that, we better be having these conversations, and our specialists and our primary care should be engaged much earlier so that it's not happening at the wrong time. Adelisa, I'm curious how you use these particular forms and whether the app is something that, I mean, sometimes I think, okay, the app probably isn't good for certain generations. I know it's not gonna do my mom a damn bit of good, but, um, but you know, for some, we're supposed to be having the conversations early. Yeah, um, you know, at the COIL events, we always talk about the different forms that are available because each situation is unique, and so we really want residents to use the form that's best suited for their particular situation. So we do talk about the um, state's advance directive. We talk about five wishes. We talk about pulse. Um, and then just depending on the crowd, um, again, some of our events are geared towards senior populations. Some of our events um, have started incorporating us college students. And so we really look at the audience and where we're having the event that's going to allow them to talk about these conversations and then who's going to be there so that we know, even though we, we broadly talk about all of them, we'll try to have something available to show them in hand or on, on our personal phones to really highlight you know, something that they'll, they'll want to use. Um, again, it's just each situation's different. And same thing in the, in the hospital, when I worked in the hospital as a staff nurse, it's really just highlighting you know, which of these do you have and is the one that you have the, the right one? Because again, if you have a life-limiting illness and, and I've taken care, I used to work in oncology, um, maybe a post is something that's better suited for you versus an advanced directive. So that, um, as Kathy was saying, it, it's orders. And if no matter where you go, it's gonna be available to any practitioner in any state and it's legally binding. So they should be following, you know, these wishes that are there that you've clearly talked through with a provider about, so. And where do you encourage people to if it's a paper form, do you encourage people to put it on the refrigerator? That was news to me when I heard it for the first time. Yes. Um, well, we encourage them to put it on the refrigerator. That's yeah. where a lot of people are, are, are looking for them. Um, and then to Apparently that's a thing. widely distribute copies. And so um, yes. we've okay. talked to a lot of participants who, yes, have it on the refrigerator. They have it in their car. They have it in their wallet. They have it with all of their family members. They keep it in the dashboard. Um, you know, some do the magnet on the back of the door so that the EMS sees it on their way out, if anything. So um, I think the standard is putting that green piece of paper on your refrigerator. But again, it's the really, you know, it's not really helpful if it's a secret. Exactly. So sharing it, you know, with the providers, putting it everywhere. It's, it's just one of those things that need to get out there as much as possible. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that just because you've had the conversation and documented it, if people don't know that, um, you know, you haven't, you're not going to get where you want to go. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of hospice. Obviously, we've touched on hospice earlier, but um, hospice obviously comes in a lot of different forms. How do we work that into the conversation and, and when, if you will? Open that. Now. 
<laughs> yeah. um, Take it away. We work it in from the beginning. Um, I, you know, we really help educate on what is hospice and what is palliative care and what the benefits are and, and letting a lot of people know that it is something that can be reimbursable or there's other options available if you can't if it's not reimbursable, but I think the, we insert it in the conversation as early as possible, 18 or older, start having these conversations. Um, and then as we all know, they, they need to be occurring at regular periods. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important as, as a family member who tried to convince my mom to think about hospice is changing the, the culture um, so that we're not thinking about hospice as giving up um, and, you know, making sure that, that people don't feel like um, it's giving up on life. I mean, I, I think as, um, as our keynote speaker said, it really is about how we live the final days of our lives, and hospice provides an incredible amount of comfort for people. And I think um, people are reluctant to access hospice services because it signals giving up, and some people think that um, because people die while they're receiving hospice care, that hospice causes you to die, um, that hospice killed them. I hear that so much from people. Um, but it actually allowed my dad to live the final you know, hours and, and two days of his life in much more comfort than he was before. So it, it really is about living, and I appreciated that remark from, uh, from the keynote speaker. So I think, um, as you mentioned, as early in the conversation as possible, uh, because pe folks need to understand that it's not hospice is not an all-encompassing term. There are other there are options uh, within the hospice category. There are places like Villa Marie Claire uh, that provide that holistic, uh, incredible experience in an institution. There's also home hospice. Uh, there are also other ways of delivering that same service. Again, depending on the desires of the patient and their family uh, when they consult with them. So. Uh, there's a lot under that that can be discussed and should be discussed as part of the process. Um, and I'll mention, just to your point, um, you know, when I was in medical school, a uh, sentinel study was published on lung cancer. And the, um, at the time, the term was palliative care, but it was really beginning the discussions of end-of-life care as well. The earlier, the study showed that, this was a prospective trial, the earlier that the palliative care consult was called, for patients with lung cancer, not only was pain better, symptoms better, um, quality of life as measured through questions better, mortality actually was lower in the arm that got the palliative care treatment. Uh, and hospice was a big piece of that. Because when people are comfortable, when people are happier, uh, they actually tend to little, live a little bit longer, um, at least in that cohort of lung cancer patients. So. Um, it is not giving up. That is an absolute key message uh, that we really need to, to not stop pushing. Yeah, and I would just add, um, I'm thinking back as we talk about this, I did a, a wonderful interview once with an elderly guy who was in home hospice, and I think it was his second or third time in home hospice. So it's not necessarily, they don't always end the same way. Um, you know, he'd cycled in for six months, and then lo and behold, cycled out for a while and then came back. So, you know, and uh, it was just interesting to hear, you know, from him and it, it yeah, so it, it's the destination, it doesn't always end the way you think so quickly, but anyway.
Um, so another big issue that we got a couple questions about um, that I want to touch on, uh, which is something that's up in the legislature right now, is um, it comes under a different name, but uh, physician-assisted death, uh, aid in dying, comes under a lot of different names. Um, obviously, very controversial concept, but I want to talk a little bit about what is uh, what is the state's role in this kind of an, an idea? What is the, the provider role? How should families think about this? I'm gonna start with Corinne because this is something that uh, Compassion and Choices does a lot of work on. So. Um, thanks for the question. And you're right, it is, it is coming up for a vote in the legislature on Monday. Um, both the Senate and the Assembly have scheduled votes on this issue. I think you know maybe starting out with a, a definition of what it is. Medical aid in dying, and the bill in New Jersey is called the Medical Aid in Dying for the Terminally Ill Act. It allows a patient who has been given a, a terminal uh, diagnosis, that is a, an illness that is irreversible and incurable, um, and who has six months or less to live, which is um, keyed to hospice eligibility, two doctors have to confirm both the the diagnosis and the prognosis. Medical aid in dying allows that person to ask their physician for a prescription for medication that they can take at a time of their choosing, or never, should their suffering become unbearable so long as they can self-ingest the medication. That is simply what the bill would allow. Uh, eight states, uh, eight, eight jurisdictions in the US allow this uh, kind of an option, seven states and Washington, D.C. Um, Oregon was the first state to authorize it in 1994, so we have over 20 years of evidence about how this works. And I, I think it's important to note that more people don't die in states that have medical aid and dying laws. Um, fewer people suffer. And it's really less than 1% of, uh, less than one half of 1% of all deaths in the authorized states um, where people actually use medical aid and dying between 25% and a third of people get the prescription and never end up using it either because they lose the ability to self-ingest or they um, decide they want to they want to keep living, uh, and then the disease ultimately takes their lives. Um, so it is, it's an important option. Uh, it provides a tremendous amount of peace of mind for people, just knowing that they have the option. Um, strangely, we've, we've heard, or it may seem strange, that people um, are willing to engage in that one more treatment if they know that there's an option um, at the end to relieve their suffering. So it has some really interesting effects in the states that, uh, that, that allow this option. One other thing that I will mention is that in states that authorize medical aid and dying, providers are having more conversations about other options. It's a really interesting uh, side effect that, um, that we've seen in California and Oregon and elsewhere is that when people are talking to their providers about all of the ways that they, uh, all of the options that they may have at the end of their lives. Providers are getting better at talking about referring people for palliative care and hospice. So it has that effect of, of you know, boosting referral rates. Oregon has one of the highest utilization of hospice in the country, and that's because people are talking more openly about what they want. Um, I want to hear from others on this, but it's just, I, I want to, for those that don't know, this has been a very, very, um, there's been incredibly passionate testimony, perhaps more passionate than just about anything I've ever heard um, in Trenton on this. I mean, obviously some people feel extremely passionate about the right, um, and you hear some pretty 
horrific stories about how people endured um, a death that you know, supporters believe would not have to be that way um, if this was available. There's also uh, passionate opposition from members of the, largely from individuals uh, with disabilities and, and advocates for them um, who are concerned that this could be misused and that people essentially who are a burden would, um, people would have a way to, to get rid of them. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, Terrifying thought, um, but it's an important issue. So I want to want to hear from the commissioner on his thoughts too. Sure. So I'll begin with two disclaimers. Um, one, uh, again, an issue that is really inextricable from deep-seated values, faith, um, and so understandable why it's so controversial and and where you stand on the issue is very much a reflection of that, and all of that has to be respected. The second is, um, I always have to give the disclaimer that uh, bills um, can't comment on any pending legislation specifically, so these comments don't necessarily pertain, uh, not an endorsement or a statement of opposition to the bill, because uh, we're, as an administration, still reviewing it. All that said, uh, I do think there are a couple of myths that have um, percolated in this debate. And you know, as this bill has been pushed through, um, and we, we've seen the issue come up in New Jersey, I've uh, uh, been keen on reading about it. Uh, the first, uh, and we learned most of this from Oregon, by the way, who started this in 1994 um, and has actually done a good job in studying it. Um, the first is the claim that uh, this is all some kind of a, an effort by payers to reduce costs. Um, the evidence actually shows that it doesn't reduce costs, uh, that there is no demonstrable difference in cost uh, for patients that have chosen to take this option versus those that did not. So I think it's important to mention that. Uh, the second piece is that there's a lot of concern about its use in a discriminatory way, that you know, providers might mention it more often as an option to vulnerable folks, to uh, whether it's communities of color or uh, indiv individuals with disabilities, uh, which is a very, very concerning uh, allegation. Um, and we know how prevalent implicit bias is in healthcare. That said, again, the data does not bear that that is happening in Oregon and in states that have done this. Um, and the most encouraging thing about the concept writ large is exactly what Corinne mentioned, which is that um, states that have done this, including Oregon, are actually leaders in getting advanced directives as high as, as possible and having those conversations as early as possible. Largely a function of many things, most likely. I mean, the fact that it's being talked about in the media and that there's awareness of it, I'm sure, is, a, is an issue. But also, uh, it does affect um, the conversations we have as clinicians, the fact that we have it. So um, that is a positive externality, um, regardless of where you fall in the debate. We are out of time, but I'm going to steal two more minutes of everyone's graciousness. And a quick lightning round. If you could change one thing about the way the state of New Jersey uh, addresses end-of-life care, I'm looking at Chris because I'm going to ask him to go first. Um, <laughs> one thing. I'll stall as long as it takes. No, uh, tell me what it would be. Just go around. When someone is on hospice and they are specifically in the home setting and that person, the patient is starting to fail, the administration of Roxanol 
for comfort purposes. For anyone that has had the pre-drawn syringes so that if the conversation occurs with the attending nurse from hospice, anyone would be able to give authorization to administer that to avoid the shortness of breath, the pain and the suffering, not having to potentially wait until a non, as a healthcare provider, I'm a social worker, I am not licensed to be able to do that. A next door neighbor would be able to do that. That does not have a license. Even though I'm a part of the care team, I am not allowed to do that. So it's not me making a clinical judgment. It's, this is what I see, having authorization from the on-call nurse. That is what I would like to be able to have a more universal administration of pain management. Pain management, okay. Thank you. Um, you know, I guess I would say just reevaluating how we reimburse for these conversations. Um, you know, we're pushing from the community level, but it, the other half of this change is that we need providers to have these conversations, and a lot of times they aren't having them because of the, the reimbursement of them um, and promoting its greater use, which also, when we're talking about value-based care, they should be rewarded for having these conversations, and that's something that we can definitely do better and look at so that we're you know, somewhere meeting in the middle, providers and, and the community. I, I would just add that the um, Medicaid now is, has been changed in the state of New Jersey to reimburse for these, and Medicare was changed, I guess, it sounds like as a result of some of the work that came out of uh, some of the early work in Compassion and Choices did. But anyway, please continue. So, you know, I think changing a system and changing a culture is such a huge lift. So, you know, for my lightning piece, where I'd focus is, I think, really pretty narrowly and say, look, we know that individuals are coming through the doors of hospitals and we haven't actually funded or incentivized the type of work to help have the conversations to train workforce, not just clinicians, but the entire care teams around to have conversations to create the sort of space to hospital where you can have the conversation as well. I think we need to do a whole new look and we ought to create some programming funding to support it. Thank you. Thank you. Mine is very related to Kathy's. Um, if I could flip a switch and um, be guaranteed that uh, regardless of where, what doors a patient walks through for healthcare, that they're asked the question, have you thought about care at the end of life? Have you, do you have an advanced directive? Um, just asking the question, I think, will prompt the discussions, will get the results, uh, better results than what we have now. Uh, and part of what I want to do is, is continue to trumpet the importance of that to the healthcare community. Thank you. If I could do one thing to improve end-of-life care, well, I would say um, having the legislature approve uh, New Jersey's medical design for the Terminal Ill Act and then having the governor sign it, I think for those patients um, for whom a terminal illness has taken away so much, um, giving them this option, should they choose to exercise it, would mean so much um, to those terminally ill people and to their families. Hospice uh, provides a tremendous service, but for, for a very small percentage of people um, whose pain can't be relieved, whose suffering in other ways can't be relieved, this option can provide that and spur the conversations that we need to have about improving all other aspects. So that's the one thing that I would like to see. Thank you. Mine would be finding a way to get elderly people to drink more water, um, to convince them that water is life. 
Seriously, I want to thank this excellent panel. Um, you guys have been terrific and excellent audience. Thank you for this. Uh, it's been a great event, and um, I hope you come back to uh, join us again soon for another one. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. There are uh, surveys on your tables. If you should be so kind to give us notes, we would love to hear them and, and uh, hopefully improve our events going forward. Thanks again. And um, everyone on, who registered will receive an email uh, within the next handful of days with um, the page that houses all of the materials that you've heard about and seen today. And um, thanks again for coming. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable program. If you have comments or suggestions, please email info at njspotlight.com. We produce these programs in the studios of StateBroadcastNews.com, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us and take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insights for New Jersey.